just noticing as I look around that um, as, as we sit here day after day and I've met maybe a third of you or a half of you personally and the other people I've been just looking at day after day and as you look at people more and more, the ones you met and the ones you didn't meet all get to feel more like your intimate friends and they all get to look more beautiful whether you know them or not. It might also have to do with the fact that we're living in this wholesome atmosphere and it's quiet. We're not impeded upon by news and phones and all the stuff that's going on in the world. Really, one of the takeaways, people often in this age of going to workshops to have takeaways, say, what's the takeaway from this practice? So I want to talk about takeaways today. You know, a few years ago on a retreat like this, where we give so many different instructions, pay attention to this, pay attention to that, do it this way, do it that way, do it when you're walking, do it now through the, now through the yoga and we're wishing and the walking and uh, <laughs> and somebody asked me, one day they came into a, one of our one-on-one -on -one meetings and he came in and he looked at me, he said, what really are we doing here? <laughs> so I want to say, really what we're doing here is we are trying to calm down and get a grip and see clearly so we'll realize that everyone is suffering that we have patterns of response to the suffering that either complicate it and make it worse or at least don't complicate it. That we don't have to complicate it, that making it at not worse than it is, but actually making it better than what it is through kindness and compassion is a possibility. And you can train your mind to do that. That's what we're doing here. So that's it, in case you forgot. But <laughs> I don't think you forgot because everybody's doing it. The first retreat that I went on 45 years ago, 40-something, that uh, was a weekend retreat in uh, a private house somewhere down in South San Francisco. I didn't like it at all. It was a miserable experience. Um, among other things, I had a terrible caffeine withdrawal headache. It was awful. The whole thing was terrible. And I was dying to get out of there, but my husband had driven me there and left me there, and we didn't have, phone, we didn't have cell phones. And he had loved it. And he said, oh, you got to do this. So, so here I am, and I'm rehearsing what I'm going to tell him when I get home about what on earth were you thinking. And I did my walking meditation back and forth in front of a certain fireplace. And it had a motto on a little um, piece of redwood burl, the kind that come from national parks that say, sisters are friends forever, and those kind of nice things, which is true. Uh, <laughs> But on this burl, it said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I think that it was that redwood burl with that little motto that caused me to come back again and again and again for the rest of my life and discover that what this does is it enables you to choose more wisely to keep your mind clear enough to be able to be more consistently kind which makes your life happier, which makes you grateful for the happier life, which is the best antidote for stress. They're doing research now. on turns out that gratitude is about the best thing that you can cultivate for uh, well-being in your health and in, in your body and in your mind.
I remember thinking on that same note that person said to me, we do this, this, all these different techniques. I remember telling my, my friend and colleague and teacher, Sharon Salzberg, when I began to work with Meta, uh, and she was my teacher and I was on retreat with her, and I'd say, you know, I do a little of this and I do a little of that and I do a little of this and a little of that. And when this doesn't, it doesn't have juice anymore, I do it this way and then I do it that way and then I do it the other way. And she, I said, I feel like I'm just tinkering. And she said, we're all tinkering. We are tinkering around trying to find just the right thing, the key that's going to open the heart. Because we discover when our hearts are open and we feel free to love without limitation, that our minds and bodies feel at ease. We feel so grateful to be alive. And our lives haven't gotten any different from the way they were, except the mind that holds them thinks, it's a miracle, I'm alive, look at that. Nobody on this planet is exactly me. And I'm a replica of everybody's genes going back to wherever, and everybody's caretaking, and the history of the world, and the patterns of trade and economics that all worked out so that my grandparents all met each other here and married and produced children that lived around the corner from each other that married each other and produced me. It can't happen except for me. That's me. And each of you is a product of migrating worlds and migrating genes. You say, this is it. And life is amazing. And you come in, and with any luck, you get raised up, and you go through life, and you have changes of life. And before you know, you look around, and you say, whoa, how did I get to be 81? When did that happen? I didn't know that was... I knew it was going to happen, but not so soon, you know? <laughs> Probably everybody feels that about whatever, you know, where did it go? And if you think back to the day you graduated from high school or the day you met your partner, if you had a, if have a partner, had a partner ever, or the day this, or the day you fell off your bike when you were eight and a tooth fell out, we remember it like it was 10 minutes ago. And, and we forgot 50 billion things that happened, but we remembered 50 billion other things that did happen. That's amazing. And to have a mind that can stay both amazed and concerned in the particular. Sometimes people uh, talk about uh, feeling overwhelmed. Today, particularly, we've been wishing well to the world. And many people have said that it's touched them so much, not even that their life is in difficulty. But if you look around the world, I think there are 75 million people who are um, refugees from one place to another some very big number like that. And the amount of poverty in the world, and we see it on television, none of us probably, I don't know, have lived in it ever, but, but we see it all around us, and we read about it, and we hear about it, and we're touched about it. And I, I hope we are. People say, I'm going home from this retreat, but I feel so vulnerable. And I get to be able to say the line I love to say, which is, I am waiting for the whole world to feel so vulnerable. Waiting for everybody to say, I feel too vulnerable. So, okay, what can I do to stop doing this? At the end of what I plan to say, um, both Melvin and I will read a book, uh, a poem. I'll read it in English and he'll read it in Spanish by Pablo Neruda. Uh, called Akayarase, Keeping Quiet. And the, the gist of the poem is if everybody would just stop and look around and think to themselves, what's going on here? 
We're killing each other and our bodies and our minds. Let's just stop. Let's just do it another way. I keep thinking what we really, th what I really need to think about to have courage is to think whatever it is, it's, it's a lot of stuff is not, evolution changes and climates change and things change, but very much of what's going on now is human-inspired, human-made. And if humans made it, humans could change it. And I can't change the whole world. I can just change my little part. But then other people can change their little parts and everybody can collectively make a difference. Could be different. One of the takeaways I hope you'll take away from uh, this week is that in the sermon that the Buddha teached just before he died, he said to have ended it by saying, Move into the future with confidence. I love that. I think about it as that's one of my many little touch words, touchstone words that I can think about when it's when my mind goes, ah, I say, wait a minute, move into the future with confidence. What's it? It's, there isn't a better way to move into the future. And what we're doing gives us a certain amount of confidence. Every time in this week that your mind settled down a little bit, every time that you felt just synchronous with your intentions, that this is lovely. I really feel it. I, I just said that intention, and I really meant it. And I felt it, my whole body. Or I was thinking about that person that I think I can't let into my mind, and accidentally, there she was. And I saw her in the fullness of her being, not just the part of it that's upsetting to me, but the whole of it. And I saw her. And wow, what a relief that was to see a whole person, not just the story. Seeing a whole person and seeing that they, like myself, want to get up in peace and go to sleep in peace and take care of their children and deal with their woes and enjoy their happiness. I've been carrying this around. It's a holiday card sent to me by some friends. And it's a, um, a line from Thurgood Marshall. It says, in, recognize the, in recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. In recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. I could parse that out one way or another way, this emphasis, that emphasis, but I think really it means when I am able to really stop, move my reference point from in me and what's happening to me and my story to really see this is the world and this is our story and what all of us do make a difference and that I hold you in esteem just as I hope you hold everyone in esteem. What if everybody held everybody in esteem? We'd stop doing terrible things to each other and to ourselves. Really, it's about, it's not about becoming a roadsayer of metaphrases. It's about becoming wise and specifically becoming wise about that we are all vulnerable and all subject to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. There was a um, 
I'm going to tell you some traditional Buddhist stories. Just because, well, for, for, for one obvious reason, because we're learning metta, which is in the, and we're learning it out of our proof text, is the Buddha says this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. But also because there are some of the Buddhist stories that I've told over and over, over all these years, and I keep thinking, wow, that's an amazing story. And, you know, uh, each of us, probably, oh, those of us who grew up in a, some spiritual tradition, has stories that you think, oh, this is the same as the story of, and, but this is what it really means. And then I think to myself a while later, oh, this is what it really, really means. Now I get it. Now I see that. I never saw that aspect of it before. So here are two. One of them is very brief. It's said to have been an interchange in which someone asked the Buddha who was recognized to be an amazing person of wisdom and great magical powers even, said to him, are you a god? And he is said to have answered, no, I'm not. And the questioner said, are you an ordinary man then? And the Buddha said, no, I'm not. And the questioner said, what are you then? And he said, I am awake. So we'll just leave that story for a minute. For a period of time in the 70s and 80s and up to the 2000s, there have been any number of Buddhist <laughs> Dharma books with the word awake or awakening in their title, including the most recent one that I know of, which is a very excellent awakening together by our friend Larry Yang. <laughs> But really, on many levels, awakening together, one of the ways to interpret it is um, a regular person, not a god, but a regular person like the Buddha is going to lead and we'll awaken together. That's a way, of, and uh, uh, there's a, uh, I, I can't, I, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, who said uh, in, in, in our time that th there was there's some feeling that there were multiple Buddhas, but he was saying that the next Buddha is going to be the Sangha, so that all of us together are going to wake ourselves up. Since this is so clearly an era of recognition, of not together, of drawing lines, of you're a this and I'm a that, and I'm a this and you're a that, and not me and not me and not us, this is a time really of growing recognition that n not only is that, that we'll have to do it together, we'll have to get over that problem, but that in fact is the problem. That to the degree that we other things and make them other and other uh, make a difference between us really and the whole of creation and of living life, we are each of us moving through it. And we're each of us benefiting from each other and hurting each other. And if we, all of us have to look around and say, hey, all together now, it's us. So I, I keep thinking, every time I think about that, I'm glad that the name of the book is Awakening Together, because we need, that's, that, that's the awakening, that we are together. And, that's, and the not recognition of that is, I think, underpinning a lot of the suffering so I'm glad to have said that. By the way, 
everybody uses the awakening. I teach a retreat in the summer. This is, I was like putting in a plug for Larry's book. Now I'll put in a plug for the retreat in Santa Rosa, uh, in San Rafael in the summer in Dominican Convent, which is now a retreat center. Uh, there is a retreat uh, taught every summer. It's a mindfulness retreat. It's taught by Sylvia Borstein and um, uh, Norman um, Fisher. Fisher and Jeff Roth and Joanna Katz. Jeff and Joanna, all of them friends of mine. Norman is the former abbot of Zen Center. Jeff and Joanna Katz are both rabbis. And we all teach together. And we teach the same sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, Dharma talk, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. The stories that we tell uh, to uh, uh, make illustrations for the Dharma points that we're making don't tell about the Buddha on the road. They tell about um, some incident in, in scripture or some, uh, some proclamation in scripture. Or we talk about a line from Psalms. And people come to that retreat who are Jews and people come who are not Jews. Uh, because liberation is liberation and waking up is waking up. And sitting quietly and moving and sitting quietly and walking or, or doing yoga together are all ways of uh, opening to that truth of we're all in it together. It's not a, it's not a Buddhist truth that difficult things come up in life or a Jewish truth, or any other particular truth. It's everybody's truth. I want to talk for a minute about what would... Um, I got waylaid in my thinking because I thought I had forgotten to write in to tell about how, uh, how my friend Tony Bernhardt, who's a... Um, Dharma teacher up in Davis teaches the Four Noble Truths. You keep in mind that the Four Noble Truths are the first explication of his awakeness that the Buddha gave uh, when he finished his period. He had his enlightenment experience. He understood the cause and the end of suffering as being the um, uh, imperative in the mind that things be different when they can't be different. That, that that's what's suffering. I need to have this, or I need to get rid of that. It's the imperative in the mind. The first noble truth is that life is challenging, difficult for everybody. Life is dukkha. It's often, it's often translated as suffering. But, and people think, oh, the Buddhists are so gloomy. It's all that suffering business. He didn't say it's only suffering. He talked about beautiful things in life and the joy and the fantasticness of a human incarnation and the fact that all beingness, all incarnation, all life is, has an expiration date. And so there's inherently loss and bereavement and grief in everybody's life. It's not grief for the loss of a person, it's grief for the life, for the feeling of youth, of vitality, or a future. We're always getting over something and getting used to our new situation, whatever it is. So that's the dukkha that he talked about, the unsatisfactoriness. Even if it's perfect, and sometimes it's perfect, it's not going to stay. And that kind of underlying 
awareness of the fragility of things. Mayor Ed Lee died last month in San Francisco. He was a really wonderful man and the first Chinese-American mayor in San Francisco, well-beloved by San Francisco's and his communities, the whole of the city. And he died in a supermarket shopping with his wife in the middle of the night. In a quite an, and he was 65 years old. And people were so struck by it, like Mayor Lee died. And everybody dies. But, you know, they don't die all of a sudden. That kind of surprises us. And he wasn't old, and he wasn't sick. And it's one of those moments that you realize the whole thing is very fragile. You don't know. Oh, this might be a time. I was going to tell you about Tony and his noble truths, but so that's over here. I'm coming back to Tony and the noble truths. <laughs> Just saying about that fragility and you don't know. That was the other Buddha story I was going to tell you. This is maybe my favorite story. And when I was in Korea, which is already maybe 20 years ago, I had the great good fortune of going on a car trip from Seoul down to the tip of Korea uh, with Korean friends. And we stopped along the way often and looked at in different temples alongside the road, went up to go in this one and that one, this one and that one. And what was different about the paintings on the walls, frescoes really, in the Korean temples from ones I'd seen in India or in other places before, is that they're very bold and they look like they were done in tempura, tempura plates, uh, like uh, paints, like in a children's coloring book. They're bright colors, they're, uh, um, they're not finely detailed, like the pictures that you'd find in a coloring book. And the picture that I saw, I, that I remember the most, because different renditions always tickled me, is a story about the monk in some time of the Buddha, presumably, walking along, um, one assumes peacefully, and suddenly discovering that a tiger is pursuing him. How many people know the tiger story? The tiger story I think about very frequently. So he sees a tiger coming out of the jungle, running after him. He runs, the tiger runs, run, run, run. He comes to the edge of a precipice, and the tiger is gaining on him. And over the precipice is a long fall down into a river, a racing gorge, rocks, water. But here comes the tiger. He has no option. And uh, he sees that there's a vine hanging over the side of the cliff. So he jumps over grabbing the vine and he's hanging and holding the vine. And the tiger comes to the edge of the cliff and looks down and growls. And he looks down and he sees the water rushing in the river. So he can't let go and besides it's high up, really. And here's the tiger and he's looking there and he's looking there and he's hanging. And at that point, a mouse comes out from a, a crack in the rock. Can you imagine what's going to happen? The mouse starts to gnaw <laughs> on the vine. And he sees that. And then he looks over here, and there's another plant growing out of the rock. And it has a strawberry 
on it. And the strawberry is ripe. And he picks the strawberry and eats it. And he says, this is a really good strawberry. <laughs> so I want you to know that this is one of my favorite stories. In case you didn't get it, it's because I, I think that we are, all of us, the monk on the vine. All of us. We don't know when there's going to be a tiger and a gorge and a mouse gnawing. Mayor Lee was shopping in a supermarket feeling in the best of health. Boom. You don't know. You don't know where you are. We're all somewhere. We are hanging on the vine between birth and death as at some point the vine is going to give way. Sometimes you can know. I have a friend who um, sadly is very sick with a dire illness and uh, that's really dire. And it's so that they know, well, you have about this much to live and it's not that, that long. But we don't know what's going to be for us. We just know it's going to be something somewhere. Um, and we don't know what's up for us about anybody. And our people, our kin, our progeny that are so dear to us, we don't know. You don't know ever what's going to happen. I got a uh, Christmas letter that I read just yesterday um, from a friend of mine, of, of ours, my husband and, my, and I. And uh, it's from a man who's in his uh, middle, late 70s. Um, a, a friend of ours who lives outside of um, Boston and is a therapist of some, you know, really, he's had a long and wonderful career he has a family. He, he said, you know, I have this and that physical illness, but in his long letter he says, um, Renee and I went out uh, one day last winter in our sailboat, our day sailor. He's been sailing his whole life. He's a very, very skilled sailor. We're out in a sail sailing, and we decided to take our dog. We had this puppy, and she was growing up a little bit, and we liked to keep her with us. So we took the puppy, and we went out for a day sail, and we're doing fine. And all of a sudden, there was a wind that we didn't expect, and the, the, the boat tipped over too far, and uh, it went over. It capsized. And Renee and the dog... No, Renee was thrown clear. Renee scrambled up over the top of it, and was clear of the boat, the dog and I were trapped under in the little part where you sit in, you know, to, to sail one of those day sails. It's got a limited airspace in there. And anyway, the boat was really heavy with, and didn't look like it would stay up. He said as his, it was really going over, he threw out the dog to Renee because he thought she'd catch it, which she did. And I signaled her to, uh, to swim to shore and get help. I got myself out of the boat. I waved her away. I knew I didn't have the strength. He's had different kinds of physical challenges. He said, I knew I didn't have the strength. Told Renee, sw swim to shore, get help, take the dog. They swim. He decides he's going to start swimming to shore. Halfway there, 
he has hypothermia, he can't breathe anymore, he can't move anymore. Just at that moment, somebody sees him and sounds an alarm and a powerboat comes around and picks him up, zooms him around. The paramedics have already arrived because somebody else saw and called. And they take him to the hospital and he's fine. The dog is fine. Renee is fine. You think you go out for a sale, you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know that there's going to be someone on the shore who's going to see you, who's going to sound an alarm, and that there's going to be a Coast Guard boat that's going to come around, or somebody, a private person's boat. You don't know anything. Our lives are so, um, I don't want to say capricious, but they are so, I always can't think of that same word. Con not conditioned... Contingent, contingent, I got it. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to think of the word that you really wanted to use, but when you get to be 81 and you think of the word that you almost lost, then it's really a pleasure. <laughs> so anyway, contingent, but they are contingent, and millions of contingencies depend on every single thing. If you turn right instead of left on a corner, your whole life could be different from it. And when you realize it, you either think, oh, you know, I'm not going to go out of my house, but, you know, terrible things. Trees fall on people's houses in, in, in storms, and you don't know. I was thinking in the story I told you the other day about the earthquake. Run out, run out. They didn't run out. They were all right inside. It's just you really don't know. You really don't know. Things happen to be able to maintain some sort of a presence. The end of my friend in Davis, just to end the Four Noble Truths, because I don't know that we've said them that explicitly. Maybe we have in this week. It's a difficult thing to be alive just because life is so contingent. You never know. And there's an underlying sense that m most neuroscientists are now thinking that uh, we don't more notice. Everybody says, you know, I seem to notice and remember all the bad stuff, and I don't remember so much of the good stuff. I don't think that that means there's something weird about us. I think that we are wired to be looking out for, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And it's from our prehistoric ancestors where it was really important to know is that a tan rock behind the tree or is that a lion? It's really important to check it out. And what we're really doing now is saying, sometimes you can figure it out, sometimes you can figure out, and, and you can't change it. You can figure out, like my friend whose doctors have figured out, that she isn't going to live very long. But you can be at ease with that. You don't have to like it or be happy about it. But to say, boy, I really, I had a, I'm so glad I had a life. I'm so glad I have friends. We don't have to make it worse. And that actually is a third of the Four Noble Truths. My friend Tony is a, that makes the same point in a really terrible context. Uh, my friend Tony, now retired from his government job in Sacramento, now uh, works as a volunteer at um, Folsom State Prison where there are men there who have done really, really terrible things. It's a, it's a maximum security prison. People have done unthinkably 
really, and he works, he has a Dharma sitting group with four men in it who arrive for the sitting group shackled and spend the group sitting in four individual things that look like phone booths, but they're cages actually, because they are so not self-controlled in their neurology that they can't sit regularly like people. And he's been meeting like most people could. They've been meeting like this for a year or more and Tony sits with them. They do very simple, we're just gonna, he said, I discovered originally when I said close your eyes, these are not the kind of guys that you can say close your eyes. They've all of them had terrible backgrounds, terrible pasts, led violent, grown up in violent circumstances. To get to be able to close their eyes is a big deal. And I'll tell you one more vignette from that, which is important. He said one of the men, and then they have a discussion after they sit. And one of the men said, in response to something, one of the other men said, you know, it's a good thing that we're each that I am locked up here. Because if I hadn't been and you had said that, I would have jumped up and really come at you. And that's a huge amount of self-awareness for a person. I mean, it's an abstract thought, and it's actually a, a, a moment of kindness. I'm so glad that I'm locked up here, because otherwise it would be bad for you and me. That's a moment of really serious awareness. And Sony said to me, he said, so I'm teaching them a little bit Dharma. You can't mention, because it's a public institution, you can't mention religion, so I can't say this is Buddhism. I'm just telling them this is some good ideas for how to live. So he said, here's four good ideas. And he said he could relate to these four noble truths, these guys. The four good ideas are shit happens. <laughs> we make it worse. We don't have to. And here's how. So I don't know what the Buddha would think of that, but I love that. <laughs> Everybody that I tell that to right away writes it down, especially, especially those people that are... Uh, leading Dharma classes, you know, because it's really, I mean, everybody gets that. It doesn't mean it's all shit, but shit happens, you know, and uh, we usually make it worse because we struggle or we rage or we think. So the question that I want to really come back to and be sure to leave enough time for, is going back to um, I am awake. What does that mean? If a person were awake, what would they be? Could you say, look at that person across the street. Are they awake? What would that mean? Definitely we understood that, understand that it doesn't mean we're not sleeping or we're not in a coma, but awake. One of the daughters of a friend of mine, one of my teachers once said in the morning, having gotten up from a sleep when she was three years old, she said, Abba, Daddy, when, when you wake up in the morning, you know you were asleep and then you wake up. Once you wake up, can you wake more up than up? And this is what we are trying to do here. We are all of us trying to wake more up than up. We're trying to wake up to be able to see the whole person, not the person who just did or is doing these heinous acts. <coughs> and we're also looking to see that kindness and compassion 
are the antidotes to the fact that life is challenging, that shit happens, that kindness and, can hap- and compassion are really what pick up the world. Um, I wanted to give you some uh, follow-up reports. Natalie and Marta made it back to uh, Florida, and both of them individually talking to me just before they left on the, on the trip to, uh, for the airport. Uh, they were a little, a little worried about the trip. It's six and a half hours. She had a, a, ca- a long splint on her leg with a lot of pain. And both of them saying, you know, I'm so disappointed because we had signed up for this retreat a year ago and we were so looking forward to it. We had the tickets and we were going to come and we were here a few days and we were enjoying it so much and then all of a sudden, boom, and things happen. And there's a lot of pain involved and a lot of disappointment. But each of them individually said, but you know, uh, I am so aware of the kindness of strangers. And everybody has been so helpful. And the, 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 uh, the paramedics were so lovely. And the uh, managers are falling all over themselves trying to help. And they're so good. And, uh, and it's been an extraordinary experience. And I told my friend Marta not to leave uh, she could stay here and I could go home, but she loves me so much. She's leaving with me, and I, you know, we've been friends. I know she loves me, but I just feel how wonderful it is to have friends and people who will take care. And Marta, in her time, said, you know, Natalie thinks I should stay here, but never. I love her so much. I go with her, you know that. And the managers were fabulous, and people were so good, and it's amazing. People take care of you. Kindness and compassion, I think, and gratitude about it. I think of what keeps us going through disappointments small and disappointments large and disappointments and griefs that are huge. People care about each other. People hold each other up with their caring. I really think so. In the synagogue community that I am a part of, it's convention, which I like a lot, is that when they uh, ask for mourners to stand up, people who are recently bereaved, uh, it's a community that the mourners stand up and then everybody else stands up with them. And what I take from, there are other communities that have other traditions, it's fine, it's wonderful, I've been in all of them. I particularly like this because I like the visceral feeling of the whole community holding those people up just by their standing up. So I think when it's time that either my family is grieving for me or I'm grieving, God forbid, for somebody who leaves before me that I love, I'll stand up and people will stand up together. Like we awaken together. We help each other through this life with our feelings. So just one last, just bring you up to date on Conrad. You knew that Conrad was a man over there who had his hand in a cast. Some people may not have noticed his hand was bandaged. He had had hand hand surgery last week, and he thought, well, this will be great. I'll just go on the retreat, and I'll recuperate from the hand surgery. But he had complications from the hand surgery and infections and all of whatever. But, and it became clear, particularly to him, because he is himself a hand surgeon, that, (laughs) that he really needed help. And uh, he was a little bit, in the beginning, reluctant to think about going. 
And I, I remember telling him stories about my friends. He said, because he was so happy to be here, and he's a very dedicated practitioner. And I said, listen, I have any number of friends who can tell me stories of having to be medevaced from some jungle in Thailand to Bangkok because they were so eager to stay meditating that they did not go get themselves treated until they were really hugely ill. So I said, go, ahead, go out of here, leave, go. So he left, and you may or may not have noticed it, but the managers made a big attempt to get him on a van to take him to the airport, and he just made a plane that he had just made the reservation on, and he just flew to Santa Fe, where the person who had trained him in hand surgery is working. And he says, I just want to read you a piece of his beginning email after he says about he said, I, re I hit the door of the hospital, and since then I've been treated like royalty. The emergency department waiting room was an intense meta experience for me with all the people ailing with their particular predicaments. There were 70 people in the waiting room of the county hospital, which serves a large indigent population. Life can be so incredibly painful in so many ways in, the, in these human bodies. An extended family was gathered and consoling each other, with what seemed like indications of someone who was not doing well or had just died. It lent me a lot of perspective and gave me some sense of chagrin to be given such special treatment, being meet, met and brought in immediately and seeing his... He said, to be given such special treatment, we all deserve special treatment. I think that's most maybe the most important line of his email. When our own crisis is, is at least calmed, we look around and we say, why not everybody? You know, that it is the next step to feeling better on our own mind. So that when I teach people and they say, why should I start the metta with myself? You know, sometimes it works better to start with other people. That's fine. But it doesn't, it's not like it's better for you or better for the other. Every, this heart is the one that gets changed to transform to really wish itself well or anybody else well. It's one heart, really. So then he says, I am taking the surgery immediately and recovering. He says, I am so grateful to have this kind of care and help from the emergency room intake nurse, the orderlies, the resident, the anesthesiologist, the operating room scheduler, my surgeon's hand surgeon student, my surgeon, the recovery nurses, the nurses taking care of me on the floor. I'm staying in the hospital. And then I got another of him since then. And the next day, I'm walking down the hall with an IV pole, and my hand is getting better. Tell everybody at the retreat that I wish them well. I was sorry to leave, but I send them all metta. May they all thrive. That's what happens to you when your own stuff feels better. And it's not, you don't have to teach yourself to think about, now I'll think about this, now I'll think about that. You think about everybody, all these people. It's like a pleasure not to be self-preoccupied. Um, First of all, it's boring to be self-preoccupied. There's not much extra new that's interesting that happens. And it's limited, I mean, but... Uh, Let's see what I can do in this. Huh. I looked wrong at the time. It's 4.30. We are supposed to finish at 4.30. 
Let me do a little triage here. Um, well, this is just another example. I'll give you one more example of when your own distress is mitigated, you notice other people and you care. Oh, no, this is a better story to tell about it. <laughs> I tell this other story. It makes the same point, it doesn't matter. I didn't tell the Mohammed story the other day, did I? No, okay. Uh, I was at a conference in Santa Barbara a number of years ago with a number of people, and we all needed to get an early flight out of Los Angeles in the morning. And so a number of us got out and were, got in a van to go from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles. And I sat up in front with the driver, because that's where I like to sit in vans. And all my people are in the back. And it's dark. It's, it's dark, and it's foggy, and it's gloom, and a little cold. We start to drive. And all of the people in the back soon fall asleep from the driving along. And uh, the... Uh, and I was not making a lot of conversation. I knew the, the van driver because he had driven me to the retreat two days before, three days before. So I knew his name was Mohammed. I knew he had come from India. I knew he came two years ago with his cousin and they were going to open an um, Indian restaurant and uh, the restaurant didn't do well. So now they had to close the restaurant. Now he's driving a van in order to get enough money saved up so he can bring his family over so they can open another restaurant. So I knew a lot of things about him because we had driven in the light in the day. So I'm also kind of riding along in the dark with him. And he said, um, excuse me, do you mind? You know, I'm, uh, I'm a little sleepy. I wonder if your friends in the back would mind if I just drive off at one of these Denny's at the, you know, or something along the road to get some coffee. So I said, no, I wouldn't mind at all. No, 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 no mind. And what's more, a matter of fact, I'll drive and be until we get there. He said, no, no, I'm all right. No, I'm all right. Well, you know, but now I'm awake, you know. And, and I'm, I'm sitting up and I turn around, but I have exhausted all the conversation of where did he come from and what is he doing and all of that stuff. So I have to, but I'm trying to think to engage him in conversation so he'll wouldn't have an accident. So I say, so Mohammed, you're a Muslim, right? He said, yeah. I said, oh, okay. So you pray every day? He said, of course. I said, how many times? I know how many times, but I, yeah, I'm trying to talk. He said, five times a day. I said, okay. What do you say when you pray, Mohammed? He said, well, he said, well, I it's not in English. I said, that's all right. I'll be happy to hear it the way it is. Why don't you tell me something, what you say? So he says a little something, but then he said, looks at me like it. So I said, Muhammad, when you pray, do you pray short or long? He thinks about it. He says, some people pray short and some people pray long. So I say, but, he, but then he thinks about it and he said, well, you know, it doesn't matter if you pray long or short. What matters is if your prayer is connected to your heart. So I said, Muhammad, how do you get to have your prayer connected to your heart? He said, oh, you just look around, and he's waving like his hand, look around, and the, the outside, there's nothing to see. It's all fog and gloom and, you know, cold morning. But I got the impression that what he was saying was you look around at the world. You say, you just look around at the world, and you see everybody 
is like they've all been thrown in the ocean and they don't know how to swim. And when you get that, it opens your heart and you can pray. I thought to myself, oh, then we're, we're coming up to, uh, he says, oh, look, there's a Denny's or whatever, uh, the House of Pancakes. He says, look, there's a Denny's. Oh, I said, Mohammed, there's a Denny's. You want to put it off? He said, no, I'm awake. <laughs> That is an excellent place to finish that talk. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, I'm going to read first, Melvin, or you? Evelyn, you Melvin's going to read first. I'll, I'll tell you. Did I give you my, tra my translation, Melvin? Don't read. Wait, wait. Okay, here it is. Because it's beautiful to hear it in Spanish. I'm trying my best. Okay. All right. Oh, thanks. Okay. And maybe it'll work better if I'm moving while I'm doing this, huh? A caerse, Pablo Neruda. Ahora contaremos doce, y nos quedaremos todos quietos. Por una vez sobre la tierra no hablemos en ningún idioma. Por un segundo tendremos, no movamos tantos los brazos. Sería un minuto fragante. Sin prisa, sin locomotoras, todos estaríamos juntos un, en una inquietud instantánea. Los pescadores del mar frío no harían daño a las ballenas y el trabajador de la sal miraría sus manos rotas. Los que preparan guerras verdes, guerras de gas, guerras de fuego, Victorias sin sobrevivientes. Se podrían un traje puro y andarían con sus hermanos por la sombra sin hacer nada. No se confundan lo que quieren con la inacción definitiva. La vida es solo lo que se hace. No quiero nada con la muerte. Si no pudimos ser un amigas, moviendo tanto nuestras vidas, tal vez no hacer nada una vez. Tal vez un gran silencio puede interrumpir esta tristeza. Este no entend entenderemos jamás y amenazarnos a la muerte. Tal vez la tierra los enseñe cuando todo parece muerto. Y luego todo estaba vivo. Ahora contaré hasta doce. Y tú te callas y yo me voy. 
Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything else seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I will count to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.